Ladies and gentlemen, people of all gender expressions, thank you for checking out the North Bank Media Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Strevens. Now, joining me on the show this afternoon, you know him, you love him, that's my friend, Michael Fian. His fourth appearance on the show that ties him with Faisal and puts him ahead of Sam Reed. Uh, and, you know, we're all in second place to Devin. Now, I should say, Michael and I have some bizarre bond since about the year 2012, um, over the films of Clint Eastwood, we've bonded through the films of Clint Eastwood when we studied together at the university. Believe it or not, there was a course on the films of Clint Eastwood. And uh, Michael and I took it, enjoyed it very much, and and he's a filmmaker that we continue to study his work. And when, when he puts something out, we, we talk about it, we consider it, and um, the opportunity arose to do that again with his latest film, Cry Macho. So uh, Michael and I got together, we went to some bizarre corner of Edmonton, way, way north, and uh, at some bizarre movie theater that was like stuck out of time or something. And we, we watched Cry Macho and God damn it, did we enjoy it. And it, it actually proved like really fruitful for discussion. And I think we had a, a pretty solid discussion about it. And, you know, there's clearly more to say. And there's something to be said for watching a movie, discussing it, and then and then sitting down to discuss it all, you know, kind of within the same day. You know, things will percolate in your mind for, for, for you know, some time after. And would never say that we hit on everything in in our discussion here, but I felt good about it. And it's a movie with a lot to like, and in some ways very strange. I would say the narrative shape of it is very strange. Um, it, it's something like a buddy road movie. It, you know, the action doesn't rise to a climax uh, in the sense that you might expect from a, a Clint Eastwood action movie, so to speak. But I won't go too much further into it here. I think it's a great movie. Uh, I think Clint is... I mean, he's one of the last of his generation. He's a, a true American filmmaker. And uh, there's a lot to like about this movie. Um, there's some laughable stuff, of course, as with anything that anybody does. There's things that are just <laughs> don't quite hit. But there's things in this movie that really did hit. So I think we touched on all those. One caveat to make, this uh, episode was recorded Saturday, October 16th. I'm late in getting it up. Uh, so at the end of the episode, we talk a little bit about Edmonton's now past municipal election. So everything that Michael says as far as his predictions for the election were made before the election, I swear to God. And uh, I really hope you enjoy this one. We had a lot of fun. Um, I mean, it's a great film, Cry Macho. Check it out. And always good to sit down with a, a close friend, a longtime friend. Please enjoy it. This is my conversation about Clint Eastwood's Cry Macho with my friend, Michael Fian. Seeked up, baby. <laughs> Ready to roll. All right. Some of these producers don't even know what syncing is. No, they know they have no clue. <laughs> they got no idea. I know, though. Please tell me what sync is. You sync the audio and the video. That's right. <laughs> it's behind the scenes movie magic. That's right. <laughs> well, and you know all about that movie magic. That's that's your line of work now. That's why we're here today. That's why we're here today. At Malpaso Productions. At, at the beautiful uh, Malpaso Productions, owned by Clint Eastwood. Thank you, Clint, for having us here. We're we're really lucky to be here. We just put Clint to bed. It was a long, 
long day for him. Uh, we changed his diaper and, <laughs> you know, he had his milk and it's 4 p.m. So he had to go down he did. for a little sleep. Uh, why? Why would you do that to that man? That man is a legend. <laughs> you sully his good name. That's probably not fair. I mean, we saw Cry Macho. We saw uh-huh. him yes. on horseback. He punched a man. He did. He sauntered around. He was a physical force for he a man was. that age. For a man that age, he'd be presented pretty well. Yeah. That was for sure him on that horse for at least part of that. Probably. Def- <laughs> I think so. Okay. <laughs> we can neither confirm nor deny. I was, I was curious if there was going to be a sex scene. They went, they've made it seem like there might be. Yeah. Because, I mean, I don't know if we want to dive into it too early. Sure. But um, the the mother character, this kind of evil woman right. who's trying to seduce him. Right. I thought she was just literally going to fuck him to death. Like, I thought that was her plan. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was the plan. Yeah. But Clint was too smart. I think he saw through it for sure. So... <laughs> That's good for Clint. He's sauntering around. He goes, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's going to put his, his, his uh, glass down on the bedside table there for a second. But right. then no. he got smarter than that. <laughs> <laughs> he scooted out of there. Well, we could go there. That was, I found the first few scenes in the movie pretty troubling. And I, I was, my expectations slowly started to dip lower and lower. Yeah. No, I would agree. I think it started out pretty rocky and you're kind of like okay what is this going to be like what right (laughs) what is the actual movie here because all these scenes kind of cobbled together at the beginning (laughs) it it was a little bit like what is this going to turn into for sure right like so dwight yoakam of all people sends him on this mission to go rescue his son and he, he walks into the location and immediately gets captured by security. Yeah. They've got all his stuff out on the table. And then this woman comes and, what, berates him and then lets him go. Like, yeah, whoa. it's a very strange uh, setting he, he ends up in. And I, I guess the whole kind of image they paint of Mexico, like where the mother lives <laughs> and then the rest of Mexico is pretty interesting too. But yeah, it's weird how the um, henchmen or bodyguards mm-hmm. just capture him, mm-hmm. and it's not really explained like how she has this mansion or right. <laughs> really what she even does mm-hmm. or or anything. She's just kind of like this rich woman who's right. neglected her kid. Um, yeah, that's all you kind of know. I know so. Do you feel like there was stuff that was maybe left out on the cutting room floor or left out of the script? We know it was based on a novel. Like, maybe that was never really important. What was important is getting Clint and the boy together and on their journey. And maybe none of that early stuff was was as important because it, it left me wanting more and really wondering about who these people were, like the father and the mother character. Like, who were these kids' parents? You know, the the interesting thing about the mother character... <laughs> Is the more I think about her, the more I'm like, this is a, this is like a man character. Mm-hmm. Like she's written as a man, pretty much. It's true. And she's kind of like this evil overlord of that estate, and and kind of, um, you know, neglectful parent is is usually mm-hmm. the man. So yeah, it, it it kind of reads in an interesting way that way. 
Um, I had that thought, and I wasn't going to say it out loud, but I'm glad you did. Yeah. <laughs> because she she was that uh, masculine. Like, when you, when you endow a female character with that sort of masculine traits, what does that tell us? I think, to me, it's like the family unit was broken the it's chaos in that boy's life we're in a we're in a space we're in a place of of breakdown of of corruption maybe of yeah. traditional values you yeah because he really it's such a strange uh the 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 kid like his life in mm-hmm. mexico he's <laughs> become like this street person yeah and the mom's like oh you have this photo of him when he was going to church when he's five he's not like that anymore mm-hmm. he's drinking and cockfighting <laughs> right. and then uh you know that that leads clint eastwood's character mm-hmm. uh mikey That's, <laughs> is his name mike i think it was mike it michael, was mike, right? michael milo <laughs> yeah michael milo he he goes and finds him at the cockfighting fighting ring but it, it's kind of like why you know that juxtaposition between him living on the streets and his mom living mm-hmm. in this mansion but even though his mom has this like beautiful estate, she doesn't really care about him. But she, it, there's, mm-hmm. there, it's very strange very to figure strange. out what the yeah. <laughs> relationship is between the mom and the son. Like she doesn't want him taken away, but she doesn't care about him. She's neglecting him. It's like what, what, what is going on there? <laughs> yeah, a lot of things didn't add up there. Yeah, and I, he says at one point, the kid says to Clint, uh you know, my mom brings home a strange man every day and I have to call him my uncle. Yeah. So it's like, it, the kid was a bargaining chip, right? Like we find yeah. that out later in the story that the kid really wasn't all that important to to the mom or the dad, I don't think. Totally. As the son, like maybe the Dwight Yoakam character, who I don't remember his name, but maybe he in turn in the end becomes a loving father with that mother was just... What do you say about that character? Yeah. Just, he he was what she was running away from, that chaos, yeah. that that breakdown. Totally. But still a very confusing character. Uh-huh. And if neither of them really care about the son, then he's not really a great bargaining chip. Like there's a <laughs> <laughs> there's a bit of like a a logical uh leap or logical even like failure there because like if she doesn't care about the yep. son, she neglects him why is she going to care if he's living with the father? I guess it just leads us to kind of like, it's not about necessarily this kid's relationship with his biological parents. It's Mm -hmm. about his relationship with Clint Eastwood. That's ultimately what it's about. That's right. And so how did you feel about Clint in the early parts of the film? Like how, like I was kind of not, I didn't want to make the judgment too early, but how did you feel about his sort of the way he carried himself on screen for some of those early scenes? I didn't really know what to think about him in the beginning. I was kind of like, he, I think it has to be noted that his acting is, uh, it's, it's interesting sometimes. <laughs> like I wouldn't call it bad, right? but I just think there's some scenes where he was just delivering the lines mm-hmm. and then there's others where you see him kind of get more into the character a little bit. Yep. So it, it's hard to kind of square him a little bit there, but I think it, from the beginning, it's it's uh, he's kind of just forced onto this mission. True, true. Out of Out of, we find out later, like loyalty or like as a, sort of 
payback for something that 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 character did for him way back in the past. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I, yeah. I didn't know either what to make of it. Like that, like we said, that first scene with him and Dwight Yoakam where they agree to, to do the thing yeah. was not good. Like, no. and I, I get that movie making is hard. I, I don't want to belittle anybody who's a creative, but like that yeah. scene was rough. Yeah. Like just in their exchange, it felt like, like unrehearsed. Forced. Yeah. Forced. Yeah. And even like, I don't mean to go after Dwight Yoakam, but I didn't, I just didn't find his performance super convincing in a lot of those, those phone call scenes. Yeah. Just kind of, uh, like he yells a lot. He's kind of <laughs> like, I need this done. Damn it. I'm right. a business rancher. <laughs> and you're like, okay. <laughs> okay. Dwight. Yeah. It's pretty, uh, Yeah. So there's not really, I don't, I don't know how much more you can even say about him because it's it's kind of just the disappointment that comes from the kid later that right. is like, the key part of it, I right. guess. Yeah. I think that's true. Like the front half or like you said, like the, like the logic for this narrative unfolding was kind of just like kind of slapdash and kind yeah. of just like, this is what it's going to be, but it's not really about that actually. Yeah. Right. So when for you was there a moment for you when it kind of turned when it was like okay I'm 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 on board now yeah on this crazy um, buddy yeah. road film that it was <laughs> what's that it was like a buddy road movie yeah it was once for they sure. got going yeah yeah well yeah I think once they get into it I mean you know initially Clint Eastwood's character has. He has to do this mission. He's mm. kind of like a reluctant hero, and then, <laughs> yeah. and then, uh, you know, the kid. It's hard to convince him. The mom doesn't want mm -hmm. the kid taken away, but then the kid f is in his back seat when he's driving right. back to America. Right. And even though he's one step closer to completing his goal mm -hmm. he's still kind of like no i don't want to be involved with this mess anymore like it's not worth it and he's worried about right. the, the consequences legally that's true but i think that's kind of when it got a bit more interesting for sure right right that's that's true like clint was mike michael clint yeah. eastwood's character was willing to give up after trying he's yeah. like i tried to get the kid and then he found out that he wasn't the first person to do this mm -hmm. which was an interesting plot point, I guess. And then, but then, yeah, the kid hides in the back seat, and then it's like, was that Clint then testing the kid? Because they kind of get into it right away. They yeah. almost they almost come to blows, yeah. and they kind of shit talk each other. And then, why is it that he ends up letting the kid come with him? Because the kid stole his wallet, and then they, I forget what it is. Yeah, well, I think it, it, the kid starts to threaten him too. And says, "I'm going to report you to the police for right, raping, for raping me. me." And yeah, <laughs> it's a pretty, uh, it's it's a messy exchange for sure. But then, <laughs> yeah. um, it, then I'm not sure what's the final thing that gets Clint to get him, let him come with him. I like, think they square up, and Clint throws a few punches at him, right? Yeah. And then the kid says, "Oh, you're not bad for an old man." Yeah. It's almost like they come to a place of some strange mutual admiration yeah i think it is it's that mutual respect because it goes into that idea of uh you know masculinity and mm -hmm. kind of the physical force yeah and neither of them were really willing to necessarily back down mm -hmm. 
we could kind of see that Clint had the upper hand. But it, you know, if they actually went to it, it probably would have been an interesting fight, I guess, with, with the two of them. Yeah, who would have won that? I don't know. Might have been I don't Clint. Know. <laughs> Might have been Clint. Yeah, could be, right? But probably. Probably. Like, after seeing everything, I think mm-hmm. he he's kind of the stronger character. Right. Physically and forcefully in the, mm-hmm. in the movie. Um, but yeah, they have their own little cockfight at that point where <laughs> sure, <laughs> they're yeah. each kind of going at each other and yeah. <laughs> right. And then they, they sleep on the, they sleep outside in the desert that first night. Yeah. And that's when they, they don't get too, they don't talk too much that first night. I don't think there was two scenes where they were out by the fire. Yeah. But and I think the first, you know, the first, uh, Clint is really kind of resisting or, doesn't care about the kid right emotionally he's like do you want to know why my mother is the way she is he's like not really i don't really care that much kid like which is kind of ironic given how they handled all that it's like clint the character doesn't care maybe we don't have to care yeah maybe we just have to get that this kid has the chance for a better life if he can get there yeah you know it doesn't matter why necessarily yeah yeah i think that's a good point um, that's also in that first scene there's that line where Clint says well any if you want to name your cock macho yeah. you know that's fine by me yeah <laughs> but, I was wondering if that's like a double entendre joke too 100% like, yeah <laughs> because I guess that's what that kid represents right is like that 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 young unformed machismo like yeah with no real anything to back it up yeah right? like he's just he's a troublemaker comes from a bad background but isn't hasn't really built himself into a man yet yeah no, it's true, and you can feel kind of the anger, the angst, the right. passion oozing off of him. Um, I think sometimes he has, like, his own kind of, like, soliloquies or monologues yep. where he's just kind of, like, flowing into the ether. He's not really, like, <laughs> right. saying it to Clint necessarily. But then more and more, as it goes on, they kind of connect in this way. Um, whereas before, I think they were just both kind of, like... It even felt like they're just saying their lines out into the universe. Like, huh. they're not really, like, connecting Interesting. on on any level. But then the more it went on, it's like, okay, I, I felt them more connected in that way. That's cool. I Yeah, there was a lot of that. A lot of that staring out the car window together side by side and talking. Like, yeah. You know what was interesting, too, that... They start in Clint's like old suburban, like that big SUV, and then they rent, then they get that smaller car and that that smaller car. Yeah. So over the course of the road, they get closer and closer physically. Yeah, that's true. It's more more intimate mm-hmm. space as time goes on, for sure. Mm-hmm. And um, they they kind of can travel how they need to travel right. in that way, for sure. That's neat. And then to me too, like some of those big, wide, sweeping scenic shots really were heartwarming in their own way. Like it was a nice movie to look at, I would say. Yeah. From those scenics to the way it was kind of like underlit in a lot of ways. You know, it was just, it was very moody and sort of earthy in its, yeah. in the way it looked. Yeah. And I think that the camping stuff is really interesting because what is kind of like the quintessential father-son bonding True. activity? It's going camping with your dad just one-on-one <laughs> and you just get the bond yeah. you can talk about nature you could go 
fishing. You could do all these things where you don't have to actually talk about your feelings or talk about (laughs) (laughs) what's, you know, growing closer to each other, Mm -hmm. but you actually do grow closer to each other doing those activities. Ah. So I think it's very like romantic idea that way. Not romantic in the sense of romance, but like the way war is romantic kind of thing. For sure. And the way masculinity is romanticized in that, uh, it's through the doing and the sharing that we bond as men, Yeah, you know, in that, in that sense. Yeah. I also think the campfire scene is like quintessential Clint Eastwood, you know, like I have a memory of Bill Beard when we took the course with him saying that the campfire was where the most serious shit went down in a Clint Eastwood movie. (laughs) That's true. That's where you like, it's at the end of the day, you can Mm -hmm. finally let your guard down a little bit. Mm -hmm. You can unpack what happened. Right. You could talk about like, hey, if we get out of this, you know, I'm going to find that special lady or like, you know, think about the past or dream about the future. You could do all of it when you (laughs) stare into the mesmerizing fire. It's true. It's true. And uh, I'm just on that. Then now I'm thinking, were there other things in that movie that that were quintessential Western, because it wasn't a Western movie by any means, really, but it had a Western sort of backdrop. Yeah. So, like the horse, the horse riding, I guess, was a was a part of that. I'm tr- were there other things that struck you as making it like a like a like a genre, a Western borrowing from the Western genre? I guess I'm saying. Well, yeah, I don't think it was kind of the the. I mean, there is some frontier stuff with them mm-hmm. traveling across, and true, you, you lose your car, so they have to they have to settle in the next town and regroup yeah. and find new mode of transportation. So there's a bit of frontier mm-hmm. there, a little bit. I think at the same time, uh, y- you know, it's not wild west. It's not mm-hmm. anything could go. Right. Although you kind of start to see when when they bribe the Mexican police at the end, sure, that maybe a lot could. A lot could be, and even the way the sheriff in that last town behaves is like he just kind of menaces them from a distance, and then kind of like, you know, gives them a bit of a hard time at the at the ranch, and then doesn't really ever do anything. Yeah. So they're really it was in some ways a lawless, not lawless, but you see who swings the power is the guy with with the f- most physical force, right? Like yeah, the mum's bodyguards come and follow them every step of the way and push around anybody who gets in their way. Yeah. Exactly. It's more. It's more like um, the police and the bodyguard. They were kind mm-hmm. of like a looming threat in right. the background, mm-hmm. but they were never really that consequential in the end, and they were never really that big of uh, a conflict to get over or an obstacle. Like they were pretty easy to just brush aside, <laughs> and so it's kind of like okay, you have that plot device of like. There is this danger. There is this threat mm-hmm. that could get in the way of them getting through this, mm-hmm. but was never actually that scary for them. Or like we, but by the end of that movie, we both looked at each other and laughed. Like yeah. in that last exchange, like that poor guy with kind of the long hair yeah. comes at them again. Finally, he finds them. Yeah, and he's about and he he's finally got them. Yeah, and exactly. the rooster yeah. knocks him down. Yeah, and they drive off in his car. Like, that was laughable, but maybe, well, we, we thought that was maybe more important than not, right? That the rooster. Yeah. There's two instances where Clint and the kid, what was the kid's name? Raphael? Yeah, Raphael, I believe. There's two instances where, where Clint and Raphael are like, they're done. Like, they're beat, and the rooster flies out and knocks the guy down. Yeah. 
And it's like the rooster saved the day. The rooster saves the day. And it's kind of cheesy in a way and kind of laughable. Like, okay, could this really, right. <laughs> could we really see this rooster coming to the rescue? Mm-hmm. But I think, um, you know, the rooster does symbolize kind of like that inner aggression or masculinity. Right. It, it's an important symbol for Raphael. And, it, it, you know, we see in the end how passing on that rooster is kind of an important moment too. Yes, the passing on. We So we kind of talked about that maybe, you know, the kid is very much using that rooster as like a shield, right? Like this yeah. is my ego. This is, I'm macho because this rooster is macho. Like he's he's externalizing his own masculinity. Yes. And in the end, he's able to give that back to Clint, who I guess Clint taught him more about being a man than anybody mm-hmm. at that point. And then the kid walks I don't know, like as much as it's like it's all we can see everything, I didn't hate that final scene where like no. he walks across the border into the into the States to the arms of his real father yeah. after passing off this kind of, what would you call it, a crutch or a, you know. I think it was all symbolically yeah. very deep actually. Yeah, because I like the way I see the rooster is it's half like a security blanket. Right. You know, like... Mm-hmm. Lionel would have in the peanuts and, <laughs> and it's also the other half of what it is is like in a gangster movie mm-hmm. when one of the younger characters is given a gun but they don't know how to mm. fire it yet and they're very shaky and they're oh, like I okay. don't know if I could actually huh. uh, use this so I see it as kind of like both those things it's something for him to hold on to and mm-hmm. be like okay this is the only thing that I could really have unconditional love and it'll never really treat me Hmm. wrong sure. and it doesn't treat him wrong but it's also kind of a tool that he could sick on people that's interesting as well i guess yeah right you made that good point where like he talks romantically early about how much he loves the rooster and yeah i built this rooster into something he was weak and i made him strong like and then macho gets a big win in an early cockfight yeah but it's like you're right it's like that rooster named macho was his security blanket but it was also you're right like a gun like he he yeah. would throw it that's an interesting device, isn't it? It's like it is. I don't. Uh, that's actually probably one of the more interesting things in that movie. I think is, so. Is the rooster itself? <laughs> yeah, because initial watching, and then, I mean, we only watch it once. But when when you're done and you haven't really reflected or anything, right? You kind of the rooster is a little bit laughable as like, <laughs> what what is this rooster doing? Right. And just some of the shots are kind of funny. How it like launches at the guy <laughs> so yeah. i wonder like you know the animal wrangling on that movie must have been a lot of fun oh man can you imagine <laughs> that the rooster there's some horses yeah a pig a goat yeah yeah that there was some and like there was stuff in the, in there that was okay we should we should maybe talk about when they show up in that last town i don't know if it was veracruz like where they meet the woman and her family yeah. and they go into the into the uh Hacienda, whatever the restaurant. I think I it's a cafe. Yeah, basically yeah. is, and the they're being tailed by the police, and she pulls the shutters down. Yeah, and they somehow that makes the police just say, "Oh, never mind." <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Like they're pretty easy to brush yeah. away. Yeah, it's once true. again, right. they're like, "Oh, she closed the blinds, so <laughs> we have no authority when yeah. the blinds are closed." The blind and the clothes sign is flipped around. Yeah, you know. But there's that maybe they're s- coming in for a biscuit or a donut or something. Yeah, I don't maybe, know. maybe that's all I wanted was some tortillas. Yeah, because that's but, what. Yeah, go ahead. Oh no, sorry, I was gonna say yeah. I think um, well yeah, it's interesting 
talk about like the beginning and and the end mm-hmm. and those are actually when kind of like the plot is moving forward but then we do have this middle section which is like almost the bulk of the movie and it is kind of like a slice of life yeah. kind of thing that's happening there and it is like it's really what the movie is about is that yeah. big middle section that there what do you make of that? Because it became almost a feel-good movie. Like, there was a large chunk of that where, like, you kind of have the warm, fuzzy feeling. Like, nothing bad is happening. Yeah. Like, they roll up. There's that pretty emotional scene in the in the church. Yeah. You know, where Clint explains, we can go back to that, and we should. But then this woman is making them breakfast, and they're hanging out with her kids, and Clint is dancing with this woman after he yeah. fixes the jukebox. It's like, what is going on here? Well, yeah, I think... Um... It is kind of like, you know, for Raphael, there's uh, a lot of reality he's leaving behind mm-hmm. in wherever he was in Mexico. Mexico I, City, I Mexico think. City. Yeah. Yeah. So w- with his mom at the mansion, he's leaving that behind. And that's kind of like a heavy mm. reality for him to abandon. And also in front of him, he has reuniting or, or even uniting. It's not really... Mm explained if they had any prior relationship Mm. um with his father in texas and that's a that's a new reality for him to adapt to Mm. but in that moment when they're in that town it's like time is still Mm -hmm. and this is a place where they could kind of just drift and they could kind of just be themselves they don't have to Mm be um figuring out how to adapt to their surroundings like they do mexico city or in texas and they don't need to be kind of like moving things forward. They could just kind of be themselves. And that's mm. when you really see, you know, Clint kind of untenses. <laughs> and, totally. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And he's able to, um, y- you know, with the woman get really comfortable. Yeah. yeah. Pretty much like the dancing is the furthest they could get without doing a sex scene. Right. Probably like Clint's like, I'm not doing nah. anything in bed no. for this one. But <laughs> no. if we do this dancing, people know. That's the point, right? Is that he he woos and like seduces this woman to the point where she's right there with him. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good point. They're, they're off the road. Time stands still. We're not worried about what's going on. And you're we're in the moment. And what's in the moment seems to be traditional values maybe yeah for lack of a better word family food dancing yeah community right clint becomes something of this like de facto or whatever veterinarian people bring their animals to him he's he breaks these mustangs and helps this guy start selling them right like that's the that's kind of implied there right he he helps that guy kind of tame those horses and then that guy's able to sell them yeah exactly that that to me borrows from like the Western, like the idea of like the pro-social or like the community, like that mm-hmm. the Western hero is always, he, he's a community builder, a community protector. And that's kind of what Clint becomes, at least for a brief moment. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I think that it, it harkens back to kind of the American, um, y- you know, the fantasy of this old western town where there is that you know you're all individuals but you're all part of the same Mm -hmm. community a little bit and um just simpler time simpler place Mm -hmm. and 
kind of his focus as a rancher. So it it kind of bridges that idea of the old forgotten town mm. from America with the old forgotten town in Mexico. Right. Like the woman who owns the cafe, she says, you know, the police don't come around here much. Uh. Like people don't take note of this town right. too much is the sense you get of it. Like it's, yeah. it's kind of not on people's imagination and there's, there's a, uh, mm. Yeah, the the same idea for many American towns have been forgotten that way. Interesting. That's that's a great point. Yeah, she says that the police don't usually come around here. Like, yeah, it is an oasis, right? It's like Eden. It's like that that sort of sheltered, and they they get to spend some time there. I'm trying to recall. Before they get there, there's not really much of that, right? They they just kind of keep moving. Yeah. There's not right, and then they settle in the town, and then there's kind of that last showdown on the road. Yeah, I don't know. That movie was. I walked out feeling that was a very strange movie in some ways. Like if you it could, was. if you could draw the line of the narrative shape, it was. It never really. It didn't peak ever. It just kind of. No, it just kind of like fizzled yeah. out a little bit, <laughs> and it felt really long in the middle. Like it felt long when they were in that town, mm-hmm. and I just didn't expect it to kind of go that way no where they're just living in this town and and kind Mm -hmm. of figuring that part of it out and things aren't moving forward so i really like that part of it but it did feel like in the span of the movie it 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 felt like a long time for sure right it did feel long maybe that was the point yeah i wonder then maybe what what the film's saying about masculinity or, or about macho versus this sort of whatever the opposite of macho is like what clint does in that town the way he sort of becomes like a father a husband a, a you know an everything a leader in some ways like is that what the film is suggesting is right like it's not sexy it's not gunfights it's not yeah. it's just becoming a pillar yeah and i think that idea of the family there is really interesting mm-hmm. because you really don't know why the woman who owns the cafe why she is so inviting Right. both of them and why she warms up to Clint Eastwood so much. It's mm. almost like he's becomes a father automatically. Right. Like there's no choice for him. There's no like, mm. Oh, I'm going to, am I, or am I not going to like this woman? Like at one point, right. Raphael turns to Clint and he's like, I think she likes you. Do you like her? He's like, shut up. Like <laughs> you're going to ruin this kid. <laughs> right. Yeah. Don't blow it <laughs> for yeah. me. Yeah. yeah. And then he, he connects with, with the little girl through, yep. uh, through sign language, sign language. Yeah. which is like their, that's the only language that Raphael doesn't know in the movie, I guess, that right. he's excluded from. Right, right. That way. Yeah, Clint seems to speak a language that, yeah, that Raphael doesn't know yet in a way. It's like, yeah. obviously this woman is taken by him. Like, you don't have to say it. Yeah. And he's able to communicate with the deaf girl, Clint is. And he, yeah, Raphael says, what did you just say? He's like... I forget what Clint tells him, but yeah. it's like Clint is Clint's character is very, in some ways, intuitive or uh, just wise. Maybe you know he he yeah. just slides into a spot where he's needed. Yeah, exactly. Pretty effortlessly. Yeah, you know, <laughs> he's almost he's a better he's better at that than he is at anything else in the movie. Like it's true. He throws a couple right hooks, but like he's no he's no like gunslinger by any no. means. He's not he's not like a hero in that's in the in the comic book sense, you know? Well, I think that, yeah, he is, you're right. Like he's 
what he's best at is being a father and being kind of mm-hmm. that person, um, that that leader in that way. Because even it goes back to that scene where they are at that shrine. The I right. think it's the Mother Mary shrine. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's a Catholic shrine, mm-hmm. and they're sleeping in there, and that's disrespectful. Right. But uh, Clint explains to Raphael that mm-hmm. he he had a I think it was a son and a wife right, right. killed in an auto accident eight years ago mm-hmm. and how he kind of started spiraling out of control after that like his whole life unfolded interesting, interesting. and he became an alcoholic he yep. didn't know who he was anymore mm-hmm. um and the only thing that kind of set him right was the work that the dwight yokum character right <laughs> gave him right but maybe that wasn't even really making him whole. Mm. Maybe what made him whole was the relationship he was able to have with Raphael and mm. with this woman again. Like, he gets to be a father again, and he probably never expected that. And it just kind of happens, and he's probably a more complete person mm-hmm. because of it. Because that's, that's that thing that he lost that right. made his whole life turn upside down. That's a great point. That's that's what that's I didn't think about that, but you're right. That's the whole thing for that character is he's becoming a mentor, a father, a guide, and we get to understand the backstory of why. I thought it was neat that that the Raphael character was like the hero going on that journey. Yeah. But and Clint is sort of that guiding figure, but we get to see some behind the scenes of of how someone might end up in the mentor, in the guide, in the father uh role, you mm-hmm. know? Did you I really liked those that scene in the church and they kind of yeah. did their due diligence or whatever with like bringing up the religious question yeah. do you believe in god and I wh- think that was good. Yeah, Clint yeah. basically says what I don't I I guess I do and then he says something to the effect of is he playing favorites which I I thought that was an interesting, you know. But that's what I thought the film did well was it it asked some big questions but it didn't it didn't belabor the answer. It was just like even at the end when they're driving and he says, ah, oh, you think you got all the answers and then you get old enough, you realize you have yeah. no answers and then by the time you figure it out, it's too late. It was like very I, simple, very simple. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think that it's really like in, in that way, it's kind of saying that it's not necessarily about discussing the problem. <laughs> right. it, it doesn't all come from dialogue. It doesn't all come from mm-hmm. putting it all out there. Like it's pretty much... Um, you know, his relationship with, mm-hmm. with the woman is one thing because mm-hmm. they don't even speak a shared language, That's true. but they're growing more physically intimate and obviously emotionally they have a connection. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, when we're talking about that theme of masculinity, mm-hmm. it's not really fully discussed, but there is a part <laughs> at the end mm-hmm. where Clint touches on it and he says, hey, all that macho shit is overrated. You <laughs> right. don't need that. That just causes more problems in your life, kid. Right. And it's not really like a big thing that they have to discuss and keep coming back to. It's just <laughs> touched on and you're like, okay, that's that's enough. We don't need to kind of um, go into a big big thing about it or explore it more than that in a way yeah that's true that's that's why clint was i always enjoyed a lot of clint eastwood movies because they didn't belabor the the dialogue they, yeah the action spoke for themselves right it's like yeah. you see what the right thing to do is in the moment and you you either do it or don't yeah you know um also interesting that there's like large lot there's large chunks of dialogue in spanish that aren't subtitled in that movie i wonder why that is interesting <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
it's just kind of like, well, Raphael is an interpreter for some of them, mm-hmm. and then some of them, it's just like they're having their own private aside, it's and, true. and you don't know exactly <laughs> what they're saying. <laughs> what do you make of that? Like, uh, to me, I guess to me, it's like you see how Clint and and Raphael do need each other. Like for this, for this to for this to get pulled off, they do need each yeah. other's skills. But I guess Clint is also he's an outsider in that movie, right? Like he yeah. tries to dress up and he he kind of does slide in eventually. But he is he is an American. He's a gringo, and they call him that. Yeah, <laughs> I think the only thing I could really make of it is that maybe the Clint Eastwood character, who's the one that's kind of left out of some of these conversations that are in Spanish. It's kind of like he doesn't need to know everything that they're saying. It's not important necessarily. Mm-hmm. And he gets the subtext. Like he he understands what's happening between them just through his intuitive nature like you're talking about. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't need someone to explicitly say <laughs> what they're thinking. Like it's not right. not even necessary in a way. That's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah, we... Maybe, and that's the theme of the movie in some ways is that all the information is not there always. It's not, it's kind of concealed in some ways, and we don't know everybody's motivations all the time. Yeah. We're just going to go. Was there anything else that kind of stood out for you in this movie? I think uh, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about (laughs) kind of the cultural exchange that happens. Okay. Is because it's interesting that. Um, you know, there was an original screenplay writer and and we could talk about this after too. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, he, he wrote this in the 1970s, Mm -hmm. but there were some screen, there was, um, a screenwriter from Gran Torino also came in for a final draft for Clint Eastwood. So he kind of touched it up Ah. in his own way. And I think that there's definitely (laughs) that, um, it's, it's hard not to compare, Gran Torino in this film yeah. for the way that Clint Eastwood as this old white man <laughs> integrates himself in these mm-hmm. ethnic communities. True. And hmm. you know from from the perspective of the the screenwriter and I think Clint mm-hmm. he's earnestly connecting with these mm-hmm. communities um but they always find that kind of common common thing that they could connect over right uh, that object so with the Hmong I think it's Hmong mm-hmm, right. community the yep. the Laos Asian community in in Gran Torino it's it's connecting with the boy over cars right and mm-hmm. saying like hey I'm going to teach you how to work on these cars and respect cars and and they have that that bonding thing for sure <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then in this movie Clint Eastwood he, the whole town comes to him with all their animals and they're like, would you fix my sheep? Would you (laughs) make sure that my goat's not going to die here? Could you check out my dog? And he's like, okay, well, we all love animals here. So this Mm. is our way of connecting with each other. That's a great point. Gran Torino almost beats you over the head with the Clint teaching the boy to be a man. Yeah. You know, like there's that, there's some hilarious shit in that movie that I don't know if they meant it to be that funny. Yeah. But is it like is it like the thing they connect on is like it's it's below or above the ethnicity? It's not about their differences. It's it's the animals. It's the cars. It's mask. It's it's being a man. Yeah, you know. It's he finds a way. 
without, you know, betraying the ethnic differences, he still mm-hmm. finds a way to integrate, like you say. Yeah, I think it's I think it's that. I think it's also kind of again this idea of masculinity that you can bond over cars <laughs> and you don't have to talk about your feelings. Right, 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 right. <laughs> I think that there's also uh, a, another kind of interesting reason that he might do this is because um he's trying to show it's kind of like this idea that it's it's beyond or it's around politics mm. like if they actually got into the policy and politics of kind of <laughs> let's say the uh the uh, the American war on drugs sure. and how that has affected the Mexican people mm-hmm. negatively right i i don't think that could be a place where the Clint Eastwood character could co-harmonize with the mm. other characters like if it actually got to a political sphere mm. i can't see Clint Eastwood as a filmmaker and even his characters necessarily as being Hmm. um, maybe their defender. But on a human level, he defends them. He's like, I can connect with these people on a human level, Mm -hmm. but let's not get politics involved. And I think that's kind (laughs) of like a funny idea of like a conservative or older person (laughs) idea in a way. (laughs) And I don't want to be totally critical because I think it is – it's um it's a nice idea that they can connect on this human level. Right. But it's also like <laughs> could are Clint Eastwood's politics compatible hmm. um with, with you know the um Mexican community it's it it's kind of like don't go there. Right. In a right. way, you know. You raise a good question because I can't I can't ever remember Clint's films being like he's like outwardly political. Yeah. It's always, it's on another level. Yeah. But you're right. What if we had to, what if, because the Mexican, like the drug cartel is completely absent from this movie. And yeah, maybe this movie was set in a later time. Yeah. It's not totally clear what year it was. That's true. It wasn't modern day, I don't think. Well, I think that that's also really interesting because it was, uh, and we could talk a little bit about the development sure. history. Yeah, I know you looked into that. Yeah. So it, you know, it was originally written as a screenplay in the 1970s. Wow. And uh, <laughs> yeah, the screenwriter, he tried to sell it to Fox mm-hmm. twice. Okay. Fox said no. So he wrote it as a novel. Okay. It was published. Right. Well received. <laughs> he went back to Fox with the same screenplay alleges that he didn't change the screenplay at all, sold it to Fox. (laughs) What did you say when you told me that the first time? When he came back with the same screenplay and the guys are like, wow, we love this now. It's like, these guys are up their own asses. I said some, you know, some of these development (laughs) people and, you know, working in development myself, they're they're up their own asses sometimes, you know. Uh, I just think it's kind of funny that that's the way it goes. But it's also when you're working in development. Right. It's not just about the story. It's kind of like, oh, this has pre-existing IP. It has a novel. Uh, the novel found an audience. So uh, you can make a business case that okay. we should buy this screenplay because the novel was successful. Right. So it's more kind of like a a business kind of... Uh, <laughs> I can see it. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's funny, though, how it how that happens. Yeah. And, and then, uh, you know, I think there were many actors considered for the role. Right. Uh, from 1980s to 2000. Right. 
including Arnold Schwarzenegger. Schwarzenegger. <laughs> he was about to, they were about to go into production, but then Schwarzenegger uh, put it off because he was elected governor. Right. And then they were about to go into production again <laughs> when he was retiring, but there's the whole scandal right. when he was retiring. So they didn't make it with Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> what kind of movie is this with Arnold Schwarzenegger? Like, and like 2000s Arnold was like still a big mean, like a big comic book like sized dude, right? Like, yeah. this is a totally different movie if it's Arnold. Yeah. Isn't it? It's, it, it is a different movie. Like, it's like, um, <laughs> like kindergarten cop kind of. Like. <laughs> right. But I think it, it would be more like, uh, yeah, more, more silly maybe. I don't know. It would be less heartwarming in a way. What do you think? I think, yeah, less heartwarming maybe I, because I don't see a way in which the Arnold character is like as humbled as the Clint Eastwood character is. Like the Clint Eastwood character gets immediately captured, laughed at, you know, this woman like threatens to fuck him and he he won't go yeah. through with it. Like he gets beat quite a few times in this movie and he's kind of like this hunched old man who just kind of coasts, not coasts, but gets through on wisdom and, and age and kind of intuition the, Arnold Schwarzenegger wouldn't he just punch everybody out? Yeah, oh, and, and like like the Clint Eastwood of old. Yeah, you know, that's what I that's what I would think, and it's just hard to even imagine him necessarily, kind of like beside a fire, like right. <laughs> you know, it, it's it different. It would be interesting. I, I'd say I'm glad it got made the way it did. I I enjoyed the tone of the movie. Yeah, you know, but. So do you know more about, like, so Arnold retired in 2004 or whatever? Yeah. And then this thing still sat on the shelf for another 15 years? Yeah. And I think, and Clint Eastwood was also considered for the role, Mm. I believe it was in the 80s or 90s before Schwarzenegger. And he said he wanted to direct, but he didn't want to star at that time. Oh. So it's interesting, it kind of, how it came back to his production company. Mm Mm-hmm. And it came back to Clint Eastwood in 2020. Mm-hmm. We don't know all the details. They're not publicized about how it got back to him. Okay. But it's interesting <laughs> even to think about, like, you read a script and right. you come back to it 40 years, like 30, 20, right. however long it was later. And you're like, okay, now I'm I'm ready to make it. Yeah. Like that. <laughs> interesting. And maybe he felt, well, we don't know, but... Maybe he felt like now he could play the character the right way. Yeah. Do you if this is Clint's last on-screen appearance, is it is it a worthy end to the career? I don't know that it is. To me this was kind of a kind of a softball. Although Gran Torino was probably too much. You know, yeah. you know where he was a little he, too hard that way. For sure. Where he just gets massacred and then yeah. sings that song over the credits. I see everything after Gran Torino as like the post Gran Torino era, right? Kind of, I I count every film as a sort of swan song in a way. <laughs> <laughs> but has he has he been in anything since Gran Torino? He was in that baseball one, I think, oh. where he's like the baseball scout. Right. What was <laughs> that, that called? Trouble with the curve. I watched it, but I don't have Me too. many strong memories about it. Right, <laughs> but we haven't seen him on screen much. No. Besides, was he in the J. Edgar one? Was he in it? Or was that Leo? Was that? Leonardo DiCaprio. Oh, okay. 
So he wasn't in, he didn't, he was he in it? I don't know. I didn't actually see that. Oh, I didn't see it either. Yeah. So, you know, I think some people have, I've read, said that this would be a disappointing end to his career. I don't know if I necessarily agree, Mm. but I still do kind of, in in a way, mark Gran Torino (laughs) as an end and everything else as kind of extra. Okay. I don't know if that's a fair way to look at it, but. Gran Torino is like, yeah, for sure, the like the meta end to the Clint character because he yeah. he martyrs himself finally for, yeah. for the good of the community. Whereas in this one, this one is almost kind of just like a the cheeky little encore where he gets to go back and live with the Mexican woman. Yeah, you know? exactly. After doing one last job kind of thing. Yeah. Although, did you see the mule? Because I didn't see the mule. What's that? The mule? No. Where where Clint was like a... Like a an, like a, he was drug trafficking. Oh, no, I never saw that one. That might be worth looking at yeah. to understand this one. But I don't see this as disappointing, but I, I see what you're saying about Gran Torino kind of being like the final, like that's the final Clint movie. Yeah. And then this is kind of like a little extra, yeah. a little dessert, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so, I don't know. <laughs> we might be making too much of it. The guy maybe. just likes to make movies. I don't know. Yeah, he just like... Don't make me retire, man. Like, <laughs> yeah. Why? But so you and I have done our fair share of days on film sets, and those are long days, and yeah. you know how much work goes into it. Can you imagine at ninety directing and starring, especially in a movie like this that's all almost all outside? Yeah, all in the desert. Wow. Well, I like, know. Like, <laughs> yeah. I can't hate. I can't hate it, man. Yeah. I think, and Clint as a as a person seems to be relatively scandal free. Yeah. You know, like there was that thing at the... Was the it Republican. The, right, right. He, he talk- probably shouldn't have done that. Like that was kind of embarrassing. <laughs> that might be one... Beyond whatever your political be- beliefs right. are, getting up and uh, <laughs> arguing with the chair and, and losing to the chair right, 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 right. doesn't look great. <laughs> no matter what side of the political spectrum you align yourself, it's kind of embarrassing. Right. To set up a straw man argument and then yeah. lose to the straw man? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, yeah. It very much is akin to old man yells at Cloud, right. Abe Simpson from The Simpsons. <laughs> totally. But other than that, like... He's he's been fairly squeaky clean, like in his personal life, and to me, he's he's an admirable filmmaker. He's I think an important filmmaker, in, in my understanding of like American movies. You know, I think we'll be sorry when he goes, and if this is the end, I, I don't hate it. I think no. it was I think it was a worthy end, even though I said ten minutes ago it wasn't. I'm thinking about it more. I did really like what this did for him. You did or didn't? Did yeah, in the sense of his whole body of work. Yeah. Yeah. And he was mayor of mm. uh, Carmel by the Sea. That's right. I think he did good with that. <laughs> did he? <laughs> did, well, the town didn't go to shit, and True. there was no uh, outside mm-hmm. kind of bandits on horses that came into town and tried to take down the mayor or anything. That that would be pretty cool. That'd be pretty wild. Yeah. <laughs> he uh, he did his duty as the sheriff yeah. in that one. Um. So what do you think though? Um. Because yeah, I think that is interesting what you brought up earlier. We it doesn't really feel like it's set in modern times. Right. But it doesn't necessarily like it could be set in the seventies. You wouldn't need to change that much. Do we do you think that 
if it came out in the 70s or 80s, mm-hmm. would it have been more impactful? Would more people have, hmm. would have had more of a cultural footprint than it does coming out today? And is it also compatible with his Clint Eastwood character at the time, like his, even mm. his Dirty Harry character? Right. I think he's a, he's a kinder, gentler character, period, whether it's age or not. Like, yeah. Like, remember, so many of those Clint Eastwood movies are like the Dirty Harry movies. Like, he just overpowers the villain in the end with force. You know, like, I don't think, it's hard to say. Like, I'd have to ask you, what do you think the film ultimately says? Like, is there a, does it make a sort of philosophical statement? Because I guess the other part of your question, like, there's no cell phones in this movie. It's all pay phones. You never see any electronics at all. This could have been set in the 40s. Yeah. Really. It's true. There's no, like, it, it could be as late as the 70s for sure. Like, yeah. think of all the cars. There's yeah. no, there's no, there's no Toyotas. It's, you know, no. it's all American cars. It's all old steel cars. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. I. You, you have to think that's intentional. Yeah. And like, even like, we should confess that we were late getting into the movie theater, but... <laughs> <laughs> we'll edit this out later. <laughs> <I'm just kidding. laughs> what we saw of Clint's house, it was like, it was like an old frontier lodge. Yeah, like exactly. That, you know, there was, there was nothing modern about this movie. No, even like uh, the girls that were going to Mexico to vacation were hippies. They they were like hippies, right? They were like. 1960s, 70s hippies kind of thing. That's a great point. Yeah. That's maybe the only timestamp in the movie is those is yeah. those girls in the, yeah, exactly. in the topless Jeep. Yeah. It's like, is that costume or is that, yeah, is it supposed to be set back then? So. Right. That was a weird moment. It was weird. Because they flirt with the with the border patrol guy and he's like, you know, being very nice to them. And then Clint rolls up and, the, and he's kind of hard on them. Yeah. Even though Clint tries to tell that joke saying I'm with them or whatever. Yeah. But... I, I don't know what to say about that. It's just, yeah, it's kind of an easy, we get it. This is how dudes act. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's kind of maybe like a bit more of that macho kind of mask. Okay. Okay. Two guys squaring off. Like maybe he's pretty cold. He's pretty formal. He's like, okay, well right. move along. Right. But with the girls, he's like, have fun at the beach. <laughs> I hope I see you there. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. I bet you will. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go back to what you said though, because we didn't. I didn't answer it because I can't. But like, if this movie came out 30, 40 years ago, would it be, would it be different? Would it would it have had a different? Would it have done something different, or would it have been received differently? I think it's hard. I think it's hard to square this with the Dirty Harry character. It is mm-hmm. because the Dirty Harry character is the uh, vengeful mm-hmm. 1980s. <laughs> okay. Reagan kind of uh let let shoot up the drug dealers <laughs> right, and we right. don't care who dies. Okay. And move along kind of character. Mm-hmm. And this is as you said like much softer. Mm-hmm. I could see it maybe like right before Unforgiven or right after mm-hmm. Unforgiven. Okay. Because Unforgiven subverts the western genre in its own way. Mm-hmm. So I could see this um as kind of being in that time frame, okay, but still later than the first like two Dirty Harry movies. Interesting. At least that's a good call. 
it, it definitely could come right after Unforgiven. Yeah. Because what I remember of Unforgiven, he's he's like this old alcoholic who like can't even shoot anymore, can barely ride a horse. Like he's he's accepted the sort of fall from grace. Yeah. But this film is a much happier movie ultimately. Like mm-hmm. there were some heart heartstring moments, you know. But it's it's ultimately a happy ending. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It is. It is for the most part a happy ending. Um, I kind of. I one one thing that I thought would happen is I thought that instead of just him dropping off Raphael and mm-hmm. Raphael being reunited with his father, mm-hmm. thought maybe he would go back with them, so and did then I. <laughs> yeah. and then there'd be like maybe some tension between Raphael and his father, mm. and he would stay close to Clint and. Mm. kind of more be mm-hmm. um part of Clint's family unit. Right. But that's that that doesn't happen, I suppose. Um I think that f- for today what what it's saying about masculinity maybe isn't mm. super um it's not controversial like it's no, it's... it's yeah, I think a, like most people believe that today. But I think if it came out earlier, like if it came out in the 90s, hmm. maybe it would have had a bigger impact because a lot of people would be like, who is this kind of cowboy who's hmm. connecting with his boy that <laughs> way and everything? Like, right. It might have been more I- impactful that way. Okay. Interesting. You, you, okay. Because I don't think the film, you're right, it doesn't do anything controversial, but it... You know, in in some ways, the film it doesn't do much. Yeah. You know, like it really didn't do a whole lot for for masculinity, or 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 you know, it just said what did it what what did it elevate to the highest value? Family, I guess, mm-hmm. and loyalty. Yeah. So to me, that's not controversial. There was nothing. You know, like let's say you let's say you were a progressive woke university student and you watched this movie. Yeah. I know you're not, <laughs> but you can think that way. Yeah. What would you, what would you, how could you attack this movie's values? Was there, was there things? Yeah. Um, was it too set you, in its ways of tradition? Like the gender well, split? I don't know. I don't, I don't, you know, it kind of would have to think of like a way to have a bad faith argument, I guess. Okay. In a way. Yeah, that's fair. But like <laughs> maybe some of the, just just the way yeah i do think it is interesting how he inserts himself into these communities right and he does ultimately become sort of a, a defender or mm-hmm. a savior or a yeah. leader that way it totally. is it is kind of a a little bit of a white savior thing mm. there and okay it's, yeah. it's kind of like is you know what makes clint want to make Gran Torino and mm-hmm. make Cry Macho. Right. And and to show that. I'm not too sure. That's interesting. It is I mean you have to you have to contend with that. Why yeah. why does he feel the need to do that? To show himself as this sort of benevolent patriarch yeah. towards a, an ethnic community. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean I don't so I thought you said something interesting a little while ago about uh like Dirty Harry is kinda like the Reagan silent majority yeah. mascot in a way. And we said that Clint's films aren't like inherently political, but he sort of embodies a set of political, or he he embodies a 
a pol- a political stance. Yeah. At least in Dirty Harry. Yeah. I think so, right? Yeah. Like it is never explicit, but it's always mm-hmm. um and there's all there's only so far he wants to go yeah. with that too. That's <laughs> <laughs> true too. Yeah. It, it it's interesting though because and in Gran Torino it is much more explicit like he just says outwardly racist stuff but he's Very like racist. well yeah. even though I say these racist things I still treat these people nice isn't that good enough <laughs> and you're like uh. <laughs> in this one it's not like that like he's not there's never any sort of he doesn't say racist things about no. Mexicans like he did in Gran Torino right so. The question of race is never even brought up in this movie. No, a not really. Bit. Besides the green goat, right? Yeah, the that side of it. But it's almost like, uh, well, it's interesting because he's like anything a Mexican, uh, anything a okay. green goat cowboy could do, a Mexican cowboy could do better. Mm-hmm. And Clint Eastwood doesn't really care. He's just kind of like, like he doesn't really argue with him. He doesn't say like, oh no, you're wrong, or oh you're right. He's just kind of like. Sure. Sure. Like he just kind of shrugs it off. Like, it's, it's like, true. it doesn't matter. He he says something to the effect of like, well, you're screwed then because you're half gringo. Yeah. And then that kind of shatters the kid because he's like, oh, fuck, look, I am half white. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that that's kind of funny itself because like Clint's saying like, oh, well, yeah, that yeah, you by, are half American. So that yeah. sucks that you're American. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of funny. <laughs> by your logic. Um. Yeah, I don't know. I think we really hit on most things that come to mind. Yeah. Uh, visually, I loved it. I really mm-hmm. loved it visually. Like I said, earthy, very underlit in a lot of ways. Some of that stuff in the in the church was just beautiful. Yeah. Uh, the campfire really stuff. Cool. Yeah. That way, and it did look like a seventies, eighties kind of. Uh, it did action. <laughs> like uh, there's this thunderbolt and. Thunderbolt and Lightfoot movie. Oh, I've heard of that, yeah. Yeah, I've never actually seen it, but I okay. watched <laughs> watched <laughs> a few trailers, and it's like a lot of car okay. kind of like jumping over cliffs and s- stuff like that. So mm-hmm. when, when they drove their car in the ditch, it kind of like gave me that feeling and just the older cars and everything. Totally. It had a very cool retro like old cop movie vibe at times, like those the car scenes. Yeah. Did we do did we do macho justice? Did we talk about the rooster enough? Because he really we said he saves the day twice. He actually saves their lives twice. Yeah. And then in other times he's just kind of relegated to just doing clucking around in the corner of the frame. Yeah. Completely like there's not very many close ups of him. No. Like you don't see it. he's not really treated like a character. Mm mm. Yeah, it's strange. He's like sometimes he's an object, like a weapon. Mm-hmm. Other times he is like character that you need to make space for like Mm -hmm. Raphael's like hey he needs to sit in the front he has a soul you have to treat him with respect (laughs) and then you kind of like forget about him at times Mm -hmm. so he is kind of just always like floating there and then Mm -hmm. comes to the forefront when he's needed a little bit but yeah it's interesting because yeah he he's maybe more present in in the beginning and end sections when stuff is moving forward. Mm. And then in the middle, I'm trying to remember him in that town and you can't even... Doesn't do much. Yeah. He's uh, he's gone almost. Yeah. So that's interesting. Yeah. Because if you really want to beat it over the head and say that that rooster is a symbol of of tough masculinity, of macho, of like 
Quinn says something interesting. He says people act macho to try and prove that they have grit. It's like, and grit is like what? Like, like really real toughness, you know? And they yeah. act a certain way to prove that they're tough. But that rooster is tough. Yeah. And so in the town where everything's happy, yeah, there's no true. need for the rooster. He doesn't need it. Doesn't need because it. Because he can let his guard down. He could be with the family mm-hmm. and feels more comfortable. So he, he, he doesn't need that front. He doesn't need that um, that rooster that he could hold out and mm-hmm. and use to fight against the evils <laughs> <in> the, <laughs> of the world. <laughs> I guess that's it. Well, uh, I guess we can wrap it up. I'd be remiss. I don't know when this episode is going to come out, but uh, the Edmonton election is this Monday. Who you got? Who's your pick for okay. for? Uh, I'd for like Mar- to make some predictions. Please. I love making uh, bold political predictions. Okay. Um, <laughs> so I think it's going to be so he by a landslide. Okay. I'm going to say over 50% of wow. the vote for okay. so he, and I think that some people would be surprised, but I think if you, it, it, I don't think it's close between nickel and mm-hmm. so he, I think nickel has a ceiling. He can only go so <laughs> high, he can only go 25, 30. Right. Nobody's going to, Nobody else is in this race, so he has it locked down. I would pu- I would climb into my <laughs> line of credit. I would put myself on the brink of bankruptcy to okay. put money down on Sohi. Okay. And what what do you make of the other candidates in this race? Don't really care about them. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> they they did nothing to get my attention. Uh-huh. So they don't deserve for me to talk about them. I'm okay. sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> Try harder next time. If you want, reach out to me. I'll give you some advice or whatever. But <laughs> don't need to say much more about about oh, anybody. I don't no, think it's all Honestly. Sohi. You don't. <laughs> is that troubling to you that this that Sohi was an MP? I know you. I, and I know you have your political yeah. beliefs, and you support who you support. Not a problem. Not what I'm talking about. Even. Yeah. Is it troubling when the when the in the way that Kenny descended from federal politics to run yeah. on a provincial level, now we've got this guy coming. Yeah. Is that in some way troubling? Or yeah, is, it's or is funny. It... He goes municipal, federal, municipal. Uh, was he a counselor before? Yeah, he was a counselor. Oh. And then he was an MP, mm-hmm. minister, and then he was, uh, now he's running for mayor. Right. So it's kind of full circle in a way. I guess. And he started in Edmonton, working for the city of Edmonton as... A bus driver. Bus too. driver. ETS, which is interesting. What do you know about him as far as his like like what does that say about a guy? Like that Yeah. Say what you will about him. I met him once. I thought he was very like personable. He was he was schmoozing, yeah. he was very outgoing. He must be well connected or, or or have the ability to raise funds very well, like to to get that to get that backing to campaign, like to go from being a bus driver to an MP. I don't know. It's a hell of a I rise. Wouldn't, I wouldn't. Um, I know that he came to Canada as a political refugee. Oh, okay. After being declared a terrorist in India. Oh. Um, I don't know the details of that, and I don't. I don't <laughs> know enough to talk sure. about it. Sure. Um, but I I do think his story of how he, uh, you know came to this country, became a bus driver, became a city councillor, became an MP, a mm-hmm. minister, now running for mayor. It's a really, really interesting story for sure. Mm-hmm. It is. I'd like to, yeah, read more about it and learn. Right. Yeah. Just who this guy is. 
I guess he's a, do you see him as a, do you see Don Iverson's tenure as, I mean, I don't know enough, but like, is it ultimately a disappointing one or did he do enough good for the city in those, it was a long time. Yeah. Um, I would say that, it, you know, when you talk about a politician's legacy, mm-hmm. what is his legacy going to be? Stephen Mandel's legacy whether you like it or not, was the Rogers Arena. Mm-hmm. For some people, uh, unfortunately, Stephen Mandel, you ruined your legacy after that, though, <laughs> when you <laughs> attached yourself to the crumbling PC government. That, Oof, that I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> as a mayor, his legacy was the Rogers Arena. Right. What will Don Iveson's legacy be? I don't know. I don't know. I really like Nenshi. I like that Nenshi's kind okay. of been more uncensored mm. in the last few months. He ripped worked. that woman on that Zoom call. Did you see that? No, I didn't. She said something about, ah, it was a COVID issue. And he just, he said, he just shut it right down. It was pretty impressive. Yeah. He's like, you're wrong. This is bullshit. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I like that. Yeah. I think that we need more of that. Yeah. And I want to see, like, I'm, I'm wondering when will Nenshi and Iveson, when will they come back into the political fold? Right. Maybe they, Maybe only one of them will. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not too sure. Are they going to go provincial? Are they going to go federal? That's that's an interesting uh, because I think they'd be an asset to who whoever they yeah. attach themselves to, whether it's provincial NDP mm. or whether it's federally liberals <laughs> or okay. NDP. I don't see either of them. Obviously, definitely yeah. not with the UCP. Definitely no, not. I don't think so with the conservatives. The few times I interacted with Iveson, like just whether it was shooting the news or something with the Oilers, like he, he was very stately. Like he, he had the yeah. air of a leader. Yeah. Which I think is worth something. Yeah. You know, but, and I, you know, the mayor is one of 13 votes, right? It's not to my knowledge. There isn't a lot of executive power you have as the mayor, but no. you are a spokesperson. You right. are, kind of that uh, key marketing piece for that city. <laughs> so it's like, this is an ambassador. This is this is the person that's going to represent our city before any of the 12 mm-hmm. counselors. Right. So it, it is um, a bit symbolic that way. Mm-hmm. And True. beyond that, you are one of 13 votes. Hopefully you can do coalition building. Hopefully you can get people to work with you. Mm-hmm. And you can have good political capital in city hall but beyond that yeah you are kind of that ambassador right right ambassador and that's why that's why my i I don't know enough about mike nickel because he didn't present himself as widely as the other ones did but he to me seems someone who is more bent on creating conflict creating division yeah dividing the people yeah which when we were talking earlier about like bad leadership or like what's the problem with leadership today that's what it is to me fundamentally is creating divides instead of creating unity. And, mm-hmm. and Mike Nichols seemed very intent on dividing people. Yeah. And I think that that is, um, it, it's a political kind of strategy you can use. Mm-hmm. If, especially if you want to divide people and you want to, there's a couple reasons you do it. One is to get your base riled up. Make sure that the people that do support you, right. they're going to come out to the polls. That's they're going to say, mm-hmm. wow, this guy's really, 
he's got me all emotional about this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Even though they wouldn't call it emotions, but <laughs> <No>. <laughs> it is emotions. They and, call it something. Yeah. Hatred for the liberals. <laughs> yeah, and and if you are a candidate that has a ceiling like Mike Nickel, because mm-hmm. I do believe he has a political ceiling. Okay. If he got more than thirty five percent of the vote, mm-hmm. um, I'll I'll give um a thousand dollars to the first person who points this out after this podcast is okay. released. You heard so, it. <laughs> that's that's I'm interesting. That, I'm just putting that out there. I think he has a ceiling. I'm very confident about it. Okay. So you divide people. Um, if you can divide them into certain camps, maybe you could get all the, the people that have those beliefs all behind you. Mm. And then um, you kind of have that you have your area locked down. Like you have your Hmm. um, real estate on the political spectrum. Interesting. And everything. So you're less interested in in building connections and branching out, but if you can lock down a base that you know is into that, into that sort of, those tactics. Yeah. I mean, billboards and, and like attacking other candidates, quite literally. Yeah. You know, there's a certain voter that likes that. Yeah. In the mold of like a, a Trump supporter almost. Or exactly. Or you can go further back even to other populist. It's interesting psychology. And I had someone told me that, you know how Mormons go around door to door trying to get you to convert to Mormonism? Right. Uh, someone told me that the objective, the goal of that is not to, it, it's not to get more people to convert to Mormonism. Mm. But when that door shuts on those people that are trying to pitch Mormonism, mm-hmm. um, when when they get the door shut on them, when they get rejected, mm-hmm. and they keep going door to door and keep feeling that rejection, they feel more ingrained in their beliefs. Like they feel more strongly mm. that they have this uh, righteous belief wow. that other people don't understand because people were so easily just... Uh, close the door on them so it's actually (laughs) okay i've heard it described as a tactic by the church to make wow you know the younger uh followers feel more strongly about their faith because it's like if you well that's really interesting so you go out and you go out and you keep getting rejected you have to yeah what's the word you know revert or return back to the place that does accept you yeah you dig in you say okay this is yeah. Now, do we see that? We see that all over the place. I think, in in, in like you know, social media echo chambers yeah. or, or people, even people in a in a workplace who who feel a certain way. Yeah. That's really interesting. Psychologically, that's cool. It is. Yeah. I've been saying a lot lately that like, the political landscape is really just becoming like a psychological. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like it's just, it's like a bat. It's not a battle of left and right. It's like a battle of different personalities, personality yeah. traits. Yeah, it. I think it is like the personality thing is interesting, and um, you, you know, it, it reminds me of docu series I watch. Can't get you out of my head. Oh yeah, keep. Everyone tells me to watch. That. Yeah, should have watched. But it, it was really interesting because I. I don't know if you want me to spoil. It's oh, not really like a big mm-hmm. spoiler. It's just kind of like the final thought of the docu series. Is it okay if I Please. say it? I don't want to ruin it for you if it's... No, no, it's fine. Okay. So basically, like, the whole series is about, like, collectivism, individualism. Mm-hmm. 
And then at the end, he's kind of like, well, today we have leaders that don't believe in anything. They just believe in themselves. Like Donald Trump didn't have an ideology. <laughs> it was it was just his his brand, his personality. Right. And he's like, he said the same thing about Xi Jinping, okay. <laughs> leader yeah. of China, sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, um, you know, he said that it, it's not about um, ideology necessary. It's mm-hmm. it's about their belief in themselves as kind of huh. like these political personalities. So I, so that's, that is interesting. That's very interesting. Uh, that adds to my the thoughts that I've been rolling around. Yeah, it's exactly they become an idea or an icon in and of themselves. You know, uh, Devin has said on the podcast that Trump became like the the dildo for the left, where they could just. <laughs> You know, they could just ride it uh, in some sort of masochistic way. I'll have to listen to that one. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you really don't have to. <laughs> Michael, this is your fourth appearance on the show. Yeah. This, this puts you tied with second with Faisal. Oh, cool. I'm I'm honored. Yeah, I'll have to been... battle it out for... Uh, Absolutely. <laughs> ...keep my second place. Uh, for sure. Uh, for, on the municipal election, though... Please. Uh, Daylight savings time. Okay. What do you think? I, I'm against I'm against the question as it stands. Okay, that's fair. I, I think we should be given the opportunity. This is based on an article I read that yeah. because it's we can do nothing or we can have permanent daylight savings. Yeah. Why can we not have permanent standard time? Exactly. Yeah. So there's three options and they only give you two options right. on the ballot. Okay, let's right? go. Right? So it's like what yeah. what's up with this referendum? Because the other one is a joke too. It's, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's a complete joke because the, in what world do we does the municipal election determine the Senate? Yeah. Am I missing something here? The Senate is hilarious because, okay, the way, uh, you know, for people listening, if you're still listening at this point, <laughs> it'll be the, a miracle. Yeah, the the way that Senate elect the way that people become senators is they're appointed by the Prime Minister. Right. This is how it's always happened. Right. Um. More recently, Trudeau has made all of the senators independent. They're not liberal or conservative. Okay. Whatever you think of that is a whole nother thing. Okay. And then there's an independent committee. I I believe in Ottawa, probably people across the country mm-hmm. are in it, and they recommend certain people for the Senate. Okay. And it's supposed to provide sober second thought, the Senate. Right, right. But uh, even though the Senate hasn't really done anything for a long time, but the that's a whole nother thing. <laughs> sure. Too. Yeah. So the funny thing is that in Alberta, Jason Kenney, and and I believe it's been happening, we've had Senate elections since like at least all of the 2010s. Okay. Um, and I think this goes back to Stephen Harper's belief in uh, a 3E Senate, or it's three something, it's like electable, accountable, something else. <laughs> so basically Alberta's this kind of like project, this laboratory where we could vote for who we want to represent us at the Senate, mm-hmm. but it doesn't mean anything. It's All it means is that Jason Kenney has to go to Trudeau and say, pretty please, will you appoint these people that the <laughs> to the Senate? And J- Justin Trudeau, or whoever is the prime minister, he could say sure, he could say no, right. he could do whatever the fuck he wants. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I think... Two Senate campaigns worth checking out mm-hmm. is Jet 
Thunders. Yes, I've heard of this guy. Yeah. Is he a real person? He's a real... Well, he, he is a real person, but right. he made up this personality right. of Jet Thunders for the Senate campaign. And he's going to be on the ballot? He's going to be on the ballot as Jeez. Jet Thunders. Jesus. I, I don't uh, remember his real name, but apparently he is a community organizer. And, okay. Uh, and she said he's a good guy. Okay. Uh, so, um, <laughs> but it's funny because imagine, you know... Jason Kenney going to Trudeau and being like, Jet Thunders. <laughs> He's going to, right. like, is he going to show up to the Senate in his rock and roll attire and <laughs> be like, bean, bean. <laughs> Jet Thunder, okay. And then the other guy is Duncan Kinney. Duncan Kinney. So he's like a, a leftist journalist who okay. Jason Kenney hates. Oh. So it would also be funny if Jason Kenney had to go to Trudeau and say, pretty please, could you <laughs> appoint this leftist you know, is Jason Kenny going to listen to what the people say on this ballot? Right. Is he going to just throw it away if they vote for the wrong people? It's it's like, what is going on there? It's a mess. It is. A, <laughs> I don't see a, a way in which that works out for anybody. No, like, not really. There's somebody I saw on Instagram who explained it's really maybe this is true. It's just a really good way for the for the UPC government to manufacture some outrage among Albertans. It's like, yeah. this is who you want. Sorry. <laughs> this is who you want in the Senate, and they're not going to give it to you, right? Yeah. Like, if exactly. if, if these supposed conservative senators get, get voted in yeah. on this referendum. And I just don't even, like, <laughs> I don't even know, um, you know, <laughs> who the other candidates are. I don't, if you're a conservative voter... Do you know who the right conservative senator is to vote for? Are people going to be confused going in? Like it's it's so uh, only and on top of this, only thirty three percent of people vote in municipal elections in Alberta. So there's so few people choosing who these <laughs> right senators are. It's it's really just wow. Right. <laughs> At what point do we just? I mean, the average person obviously doesn't care. Like if thirty three percent of people are voting, you can say, yeah. There's fifty percent of people who actually don't care. Yeah. Or like, so at what point do we throw up our hands and just say it's not really worth getting too emotionally engaged with? Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I mean, it's the hyper. Yeah, it's the hyper engaged political people that are right choosing uh, choosing who all of this in municipal elections, which is funny because it's mm -hmm. like also the daylight savings referendum it's it's the only real thing that's binding so however we vote that's going to be automatically what happens after it, right and so say uh that the vote to change it right. passes 50 percent of the people that vote say <laughs> yes we should change it to right. permanent daylight savings time 50% of 33% is 16%. So 16% of the people in Alberta decided that we're going to change <laughs> how our clocks work. It's ridiculous. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Yeah. It's like, cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. actually not, I mean, it's as close to democracy as you could be, but it's not really democracy in a sense. It's some kind of, yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah, some sort of twisted <laughs> kind of game at some point. It, so It's a game. Yeah. Well, let's wrap it up. Thank you for doing this, man. I had a great, yeah. we had a good day hanging out. Yeah. 
thanks for having me on the podcast again. Always a pleasure. Yeah, we'll get one more in maybe before the end of the year. Sounds good. All righty. Thank Let's you for watching it. and listening, folks. See you later. <laughs> <laughs>